welcome to the most interesting people in higher education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, and thank you for joining this episode of The Most Interesting People in Higher Education. We figured we'd mix it up a bit and bring two guests to the show this time, hosting Eddie Maloney from Georgetown and Josh Kim from Dartmouth. These two often come in a pair, and for our show, we made no exception. And what I found out was when you have two deep thinkers of online education in the same room from two of the country's top universities, they're gonna wanna talk a lot about the core parts and the nebulous parts of education and the trends of online learning. And as an executive at a digital education company myself, I was glad to go toe-to-toe with them. At some points, they actually turned the interview around on me, which I didn't expect, but I went with it. And like I said, these guys think a lot about teaching and learning. Here's how Eddie frames that relationship. But it's about recognizing that teaching and learning is not just pedagogical practice. That is core and central and necessary, but it is uh, it is a contextual relationship as well. And Josh wasn't always the author, educator, and widely known expert in this field that he is today. In fact, his path to where he got started with being what he describes as bad at school. And I think, you know, from then, if I kind of trace this kind of weird history of, of teaching and different roles over the last 20, 25 years of my career, I think it all goes back to that that always looking how technology can make people like me who really didn't like school, were bad at school, good at school, and, and love learning. So put your thinking caps on and get ready for a really fun conversation with some unexpected moments with Josh and Eddie. Here we go. Welcome to the most recent episode of Most Interesting People in Higher Education. Today, I'm joined by two guests, uh, two folks I've known for a little while, and I'm excited to have on the show uh, we're going to get into their backstory uh, and how they got into their roles. And then because of the nature of their jobs, I think we're going to nerd out a little bit around online learning uh, and the future of education post-pandemic. I'd like to formally welcome Dr. Edward Maloney, the Executive Director of the Center of New Designs and Learning and Scholarships at Georgetown. Uh, they call it Candles, and we'll talk about Candles today. And Dr. Joshua Kim, Director of Online Programs and Strategy, who was the former uh, senior scholar, or currently a senior scholar, but formerly at Candles uh, at Georgetown as well. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Here we go. Thanks, Lee. It's great to be with you. Hey, Lee. Hey, Josh. And it's good to see you all. We are, we're only audio, but um, I'll remind everybody we're on Zoom. So it's, it's good to see everybody. I feel like we've been hanging out on Zoom for a long time. And I haven't seen you guys in person, I don't think in a couple of years. Last time I was in New York. You know, here we are. I mean, that's how I introduced you all. Eddie and Josh, how do you introduce yourselves? What, uh, what do you do to explain yourself? Uh, this is Eddie. Uh, probably not all that different, at least initially. Uh, and then, you know, as we get get going, um, we're perfectly happy to insult each other and explain what's wrong with the other person. But uh, generally, we start politely and nicely, right? Is that right, Josh? Yeah, I think that's right. We'll, we'll definitely uh, make fun of each other. Lee, looking forward to making Good. fun of you. I, you. I like to say that that I'm a student of higher education. And to, to me, being a student of higher education gives you all sorts of latitude because you can ask 
all sorts of questions and you don't really have to have the answers. And I, I appreciate you taking the, the tone towards making fun of me and, and setting that appropriately. This is going to be a good, a good time, I can tell. You all are in some pretty interesting roles. Uh, I think you're, I mean, unofficially, you're kind of the power duo, if you will, of online learning. You've, you've published two books together, which we'll get into. I'd like to start, if we can, how you got here, right? Like, uh, I, I can Google my way and figure out, like, kind of the uh, the background for each of you. But I'm curious, you know, as a you know, a brief anecdote, how did you find yourselves in these roles? How did you find yourself not only being a professor of practice in many ways, but then also obsessed with the idea of digital learning and the future where all this goes? And I guess, Eddie, let's start with you. I'll, I'll play, since this is our first time having two people, I'll play moderator uh, in addition to host. So, and I'll, I'll make it fair. I'll go back and forth. I won't pick favorites. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be honest. Yeah, that sounds great. That might help uh, to have a little bit of, um, a little bit of direction. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk over each other, um, at least respond to each other as we go to uh, Josh and I usually. Um, pretty good at that. How did I get here? Well, you know, it's a, it's a long and complicated story, but the, the short version of the story is in graduate school, I became, I had to teach as part of my graduate uh, fellowship. I became really interested in the process of learning how to teach, how to become a better teacher, how to think about the engagement with students and started to see the relationship between two things. One, how the teaching uh, was part of the disciplinary work that I was doing and why that was important and why research and teaching were not separate activities. And then also just an interest that I had, had long had um, in technology, the kind of relationship between technology and teaching was really starting to come to the, to the fore um, in the 90s. And so I um, started to kind of get invested in and interested in that process and, and that kind of scope and that, that set of activities. Partly for me, the issue is not digital learning um, necessarily. It's really learning. It's teaching and learning. And, and as Josh said, it's higher ed mm. as a kind of um, space. And so if I were to tell a story, the next time I probably would start with my interest in higher ed and kind of coming to college and really being fascinated about the space. Or I might start the story somewhere else, like getting my first PC and what that meant. And um, there are kind of different places where this, you know, the story kind of builds and a different kind of momentum, but it all kind of comes down to an interest in learning, an interest in higher education, interested in the space that, um, that we occupy and just trying to keep um, it moving forward, keep doing this work um, as well as we possibly can in complicated times. So um, that's sort of how I got here. And that's the, I guess, the short version. And the question everybody wants to know, what was your first brand of PC? Uh, well, my first, I had many, many computers before I had a PC, so I probably should have, um, at least PC as, as the, the term we use it today. My first computer was a Timex Sinclair, T, I think it was a T1000, I, I can't remember the actual um, model number, it was the first one that they came out, that was a consumer model, you plugged it into your TV, each key on it was a um, command in basic, basic programming language. Um, and so you could learn how to program using this. Um, we really didn't have a key. The keyboard only opened up when you were writing uh, text within quotation marks. Everything else was actually just to, to program. And if you were lucky enough, you could buy a cassette tape recorder and plug it into it to actually store your programs as audio um, files on a cassette tape um, that then would take 45 minutes to load back in a program to, you know, add two numbers together. So, And, and you... You realize the irony of somebody being an early adopter of technology and also having their PhD in English literature and master's in textual studies. That's there's a little bit of dissonance there. Yeah, there there is though. Um, I, so I started as, actually as a computer science major when I went to college, and I did that. For ah, a few, there it is. Okay. 
was not um, it was not for me. But the relationship between the kind of work that I did uh, in literary studies, uh, literary theory, and computer science is, is probably a little bit closer than it seems if you're thinking about literature and kind of more the aesthetic side or the poetic side. So more philosophical, more logical. Um, but also the thing to me that's interesting about both of them, both of these spaces, is that they require a kind of interest in, a desire to spend time in uh, ambiguity in, in places that are uncertain and problems that have not been solved or need to be solved in a variety of different ways. And also a lot of differences between them, of course, but um, there's that that interest in that, in that uh, kind of liminal space that we sometimes occupy. Yeah. Touche. Like, that's a great point. Josh, you're up. What got you here? What sent you to Dartmouth in the last couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll try to answer what I think got me into this space. And I want to go way back to like junior high school or fifth grade. I was really bad at school. Like I was just doing really horribly. And the reason I was really bad, it turns out, is that I can't handwrite. Like they kept putting me in special classes for handwriting, giving me special pencils with like the triangles on them. Nothing worked. Uh, my dad, who's an academic, he got me a computer. He got a, a K-Pro I don't know if you remember these luggable computers. They're in these big cases. White they cases, yeah. Yep. And with a computer, I could actually type out what I wanted to write and you know edit with a word processor, a word star. And all of a sudden, I was really good at school. Like I went from really bad and then my dad brought this technology and then I was really good. And I think, you know, from then, if I kind of trace this kind of weird history of, of teaching and different roles over the last, 20, 25 years of my career, I think it all goes back to that, that always looking how technology can make people like me who really didn't like school, who are bad at school, good at school and, and love learning. I like that. It's a very romantic answer. Um, you know, Josh, uh, sorry, Lee. Um, I actually sold K-Pro uh, logable computers. I don't think we talked about this when I was in high no. school. I worked at a computer store and we sold uh, portable computers, the like old Toshiba laptops with plasma disgrace displays, not the plasma that we think about today, but like these old red tinted plasma displays. And maybe I sold your dad your computer. That would be. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> we should figure that out. I feel like there's a way to track that back and see if there was some sort of connection between the buyer and the seller. So in your respective roles, like you're you're both leading digital innovation. Is that a safe term to use for your campus digital innovation at you know Georgetown and Dartmouth? You've co-written a book together, as I mentioned. What what's up? What are you up to right now? Right? We're we're in the middle of what we hope is the the end of the pandemic. Uh, I don't want to jinx it, jinx it. Somebody should knock on wood, but what's going on right now? Uh, what are you up to? And what are you what are you faced with? And what are you what are you strategizing around? Let's go with Josh this time. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll try. So what we're all talking about now is what happens next, right? Like yeah. we've lived through this crazy time where our schools were doing things we never expected to do. You know, Dartmouth has been face-to-face, -face, intimate, small residential since 1769. And in a matter of weeks, we moved to all remote learning. And, you know, we're just starting to come back from that. I think the big question is, once we we go out of the pandemic and, and everyone's vaccinated and and folks are folks are safe, what do we take away? What, what do we take away that's positive? What, what have we learned? What can what can we build on? What do we want to totally let go? So I think most of our energy is thinking about life after COVID. Makes sense, Eddie. How about you all? I think uh, no, I, absolutely. Josh, Josh is just Josh is right. I think the there's the post COVID sort of reality. Where are we going to go? There's also the 
attempt to try to think about the challenges that higher ed was facing pre-COVID, um, what that looks like, and um, you know, there are questions about the cost and the value proposition and what higher ed should be. Should it be more vocational? Should it be preparing students for jobs? Should it be um, something that is about developing a capacity around the life of the mind? You know, what are the sort of, what's the function of higher ed? What is higher ed as an ecosystem? How do we think about it across all of the different layers of higher education in the country? Um, and Right now, you know, and there, there are very, very significant questions around equity and access and who we're serving um, as a as a kind of industry and what that means for our society and so on. There's a lot of tentativeness about uh, the uh, value of higher education in our in our country right now. And so continuing to um, help demonstrate that value, again, not just to the individual student and getting a career making a career, but also to well-being and to sense of happiness, to sense of lifelong engagement and learning and so on. How we think about that in relationship to changing in workforce and AI and, and all of the things that we're probably going to be facing and climate change and so on and so forth. All of these things were pre-COVID and um, they're certainly, they certainly didn't go away during COVID. And I, I think the kind of thing that we're starting to at least dip our toe in uh, to right now is like, well, what does it mean to try to address some of those challenges mm. with some of the things that we've learned during this period of time? Um, and so to see this, not just how do we take the, the lessons of COVID and figure out remote learning better, but how do we take the lessons of COVID and think about what it means for higher ed as a system, as, a, as an ecosystem, as a kind of space? And, and what, what are we going to do with that? What does that look like? So not what does higher ed look like next year in fall 2021 or spring 2022, but what does higher ed look like in five years, 10 years, or 50 years? And, and how do we start to, to imagine that in different kinds of ways? Yeah, the, yeah hey, hey Lee, Lee, to ask you, I mean, given that you're part of this ecosystem, you know, turnabout's fair play. Um, okay. But like, like for you, being in the middle of COVID with, uh, with, with Noodle, like, like what, how, how have things changed for you? over the past few months and, and where do you see us going? You know what, I, I like this format because I get to, you can go back and forth with me. I'm not doing the interview, sure. We experienced, I mean, kind of a vacuum for a few months, right? Folks said, we, we can't, Noodle, we love you, but you can't, we can't talk to you. Um, we, need to, we need to focus on the students that are, that are going, going a little crazy on, on Zoom or are threatening lawsuits because they can't come back to, or we want them to come back to campus or they can't go back to campus and they're paying the same. Like, we went through this moment of like, or just wait. And then we saw this moment of remote instruction and faculty who were probably recalcitrant towards going online in the first place saying, well, we told you this is terrible. And we said, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't online learning as the two of you know very well. This is just remote instruction. And yes, this is terrible because I've been doing it for 10 hours a day on Zoom, just like you have been just conducting business this way. And I, I think this, that's pretty terrible too. And now I, I would call it the thaw. We're starting to see a little bit of thawing going on where everybody's now rushing back and saying, all right, we, we now saw what it looks like if you don't do it well. How do we do this right? Either for the next pandemic or for the 30 some percent of students who are now saying, I would rather go exclusively online in some sort of a hybrid version. How do we do that? Um, and so I'm thinking of it, obviously, through my lens of partnerships and then through the, you know, the more of the learning science side of this. I think a lot of people are saying, well, how do we do this in a more engaging way? How do we make classes more collaborative? Because what they did on Zoom was really just talking head to 50 people or more. How do we do breakout groups, but not just in Zoom? How do we do that in a whole different ecosystem on themselves? And so we're, so we're starting to see, a, I don't know, more conversation around it. Uh, thanks for asking. What I find really interesting, the meta point is no one talked about this stuff other than people like us. For the last five, 10 years, and now everyone's interested in, which is just a, 
kind of a funny moment for us all to reflect on. Josh, you've been writing about this though for a long time and talking to folks like me or at institutions. How, I guess I'm curious, how did you get into to blogging for Inside Higher Ed? When did that start and what has changed for you? Because you've kind of seen the whole thing. You've been talking to folks for a long time. Yeah, um, and just to reflect on, on the how you just answered that question, it, it is an extraordinary time now and um, we're, we're having conversations across our institutions and across institutions that we've never had right. before. I, I think for Eddie and I, you know, who we're, we're both living in this work and, and also trying to study it at the same time. And when we think about this and we think about our, our, our next book about looking at, at mm. what we've learned from COVID and how universities learn it and change, what we think about is, well, well how, do we, how do we not regress back to the status quo? I mean, there's such a a push for everyone just to come face to face because we're all kind of so burnt out by, by Zoom. And we're all just kind of all exhausted anyway by, by this. What, what actually needs to happen so that our, our universities invest in learning in the way that say universities invested in IT in the 80s and 90s at, at that level? It, it's a really kind of, kind of interesting question. So, you know, as you say, I've been thinking and writing about this stuff now for, for a decade, started writing for, for Inside Higher Ed. And as you've also said, there's really never been a time now where we've had this kind of opportunity. You know, we've got, we've got everyone's attention. Everyone knows that online learning is, is not just a nice to have or about revenues, but it's about institutional re resiliency. We know that investing in learning science is about institutional resiliency for whatever happens, the next, the, the next plague or extreme weather event, or as you say, students figuring out they want more flexible arrangements. We don't know, like we don't know how, what the answer to that is. We think that it involves, it needs scholarship, it needs research, it needs study. Um, we appreciate that that Noodle brought scholars together, as you mentioned, to New York City to have these conversations. You know, I, I think that that Noodle and folks like you are in a good position to, to do that again and to invest in that kind of research. You guys look across the ecosystem, and I think you probably have a responsibility to, to play that role. I appreciate that. Yeah, I actually kind of like the pressure you put on us every time you say it. Like, because I, I agree, right? If we're if we're really in this together, the corporations, the for-profit companies, not the for-profit institutions themselves, need to need to really do some stuff around evolution, research, transparency. More to come on that, Eddie. There was a line in the I, I believe it was in the low density university that you all wrote that change is a complex dynamic between what happens. I am reading this obviously, but change is a complex dynamic between what happens in the classroom and the large in larger institution structures and traditions at play. What do you mean by that complex dynamic between the classroom and the institutions? Like what, what is at play? What's going on there? Well, in many respects, that is the, the definition of learning innovation as we've been trying to propagate it. It's um, this idea that there's probably a, a cultural romanticized notion of teaching and learning that is um, mm. this activity that happens solely between a professor and her students, and that this could happen anywhere, that this could happen in any context, that this is the heart and soul of the kind of teaching and learning endeavor. And it's true. I mean, that is probably the, the most important relationship that a student has, um, other than with peers that become part of their lifelong network and so on. Um, when they go through college, it's that relationship between a faculty member and her students. The difference, I think, that, that we're trying to point out, or the com complication that we're trying to point out, is that historically, that has also involved um, a significant institutional context. And that institutional context has 
had to invest in uh, a system for students to engage in. So that's classrooms and it's the tools uh, within the classroom and that's the scheduling and the administrative structure and so on. There's a kind of a, a full institutional context that has enabled um, and at times inhibited um, that teaching and learning mission. You can think about things, for example, um, as an institution has had to grow uh, and increase the size of the student body, they've had to more often than not increase the size of the classes. So the ratio between a faculty member and her students has increased. And so you have an institutional context that has a direct impact on what happens in the classroom. It's no, no longer a faculty member and two or three students sitting together in a tutorial. It is something that may grow to a lecture of 450 students to, you know, in one faculty member. What we're trying to call out is that that relationship between the institutional context, institutional decisions, institutional strategy, institutional investments, institutional structures, and so on, all of those things not only has historically have been in, in place, but over the past probably 20 to 30 years have really started to have a much more dramatic impact on the relationship between what happens in the classroom and, and a student's um, success and engagement um, at a college or university. And so trying to really pay attention to what those investments are, what the strategies of an institution are, how those um, elements of institutional decisions impact teaching and learning. And this is particularly important for, I think, for, for Josh and me is because we, we see institutions not necessarily taking intentional strategic steps to invest in teaching and learning. Or if, and when they do, they do so at a, at a level of investment and engagement that is much smaller than virtually every other strategic decision that they make. So Josh mentioned the idea of investing in IT departments um, in the 90s. Um, as we moved away from mainframe computers for our administrative structures, we, we really needed to ramp up the kind of infrastructure we had for technology. And we saw that as an institution, we put poured tens of millions of dollars at institutions to do this kind of work to, to invest in IT. We do this around sports. We do this around co-curricular activities, right? Residence halls is incredibly important to residential institutions. We spend so much money on all sorts of support services most often, more often than not, I would say, the teaching and learning missions are a very, very small part of that overall investment. And we think that things are changing in such a way that we not only need to make that investment, we've also started to see more and more institutions making that investment, right? So it's, it's trying to mark that moment. It's what we're calling in our first book, A Turn to Learning, but it's also trying to say that that investment needs to continue. It needs to continue at a probably a more significant pace. It needs to be central. The idea of teaching and learning needs to be central to the strategy of institutions. And we saw that, you know, maybe nowhere more visibly than during the past year, where as institutions had to brush away everything else that they do in order to really focus on core act activities, engagement with their students, the only thing really that was remaining was, was teaching and learning and providing that context for students to get the, the connection with their faculty members in this, in this remote environment, right? So it's all of those things, but it's about recognizing that teaching and learning is not just pedagogical practice. That is core and central and necessary, but it is, uh, it is a contextual relationship as well. And um, to do that work well, we have to think about that, that dynamic. Great. I love that. And I, a quick plug for you, so you don't have to do it yourself. Um, your book, co-written, that's part of the teach.edu Hopkins series, Learning Innovation and the Future of Higher Education. There's a part in there where you're talking about how the LMS is, I believe, a solution and it's also problematic. And at, you're mentioning IT, you're mentioning the, the dynamic between campus and online. And I've heard people say, well, we have an LMS. Okay, that's great. 
then what? So I'm just curious, like, is, how does the LMS play into what you're talking about in that dynamic? And for those who might not know what LMS is, if you're, if you're new to the space, learning management service. Uh, so Blackboard was one of the early ones, and now you have Canvas and D2L and a lot of other folks that are making more, more enriching environments. Yeah, lots of lots of reasons to, to kind of dig deep into this problem. I, my guess is if Josh and I were writing this book right now, one of the analogies we'd be making around the LMS or the CMS, um, it's really a, kind of a course management system rather than a learning management system. This is like one of the arguments that we would have, like, is it really about managing the course? Is it an administrative tool or is it a learning tool? Um, and you can do it. You mm. can use it for learning, but probably the majority of people use it for, for course management. My guess, though, back to the point, is that if Josh and I were having this conversation now and trying to figure out this chapter, we might be looking at the LMS like we, we were looking at the past year in the pandemic. It's a, it had an impact, a dramatic impact on how we think about technology and its relationship to teaching and learning. Doesn't mean it was good. Doesn't mean that it was doing what it intended to do. It doesn't mean that it was effective, but it changed a, a relationship between the faculty member, the students, and the institutional infrastructure. The same way that the, the pandemic and all of the, the challenges that it's brought to us has changed the relationship between the faculty member, the students, and the institutional context, or it's at least modified and adapt, you know, it's affected that relationship in some way. Yeah. And I think we'd be talking about Zoom right now also. Yeah. Uh, as that. So um, I, I just want to follow up on Eddie's question with a question back to you, Lee. So I, I just want to frame this that one of the, the creative tensions that Eddie and I always have is around nonprofit, for-profit partnerships. I would say in general, I'm sort of more nonprofit, for-profit curious, and Eddie is more, more nonprofit, for-profit skeptical. And it's kind of a good tension that, that helps our writing. But, but Lee, what do you see, given all, the thing, all these changes in the role of the institution in teaching and learning, what do you see as the, the place of nonprofit, for-profit partnerships in this story of the evolving higher ed ecosystem? Sure. Uh, I'll respond first to the, the point of being curious versus skeptical. I'm surprised everyone doesn't start at skeptical. Uh, I think if you look back at the last couple of decades at some of these partnerships and the results of them, there, there's some real things to research and discover and figure out why things happened. I'm not going to go into the specifics of those, but if you follow the industry, I know the two of you do and anybody else who might be a part of it, you might know what I'm talking about or the kinds of partnerships we've seen and the kind of contracts that get signed. I think that if, if universities want to engage in a public-private partnership, the first step is to take your time. I, I've seen folks rush into things uh, and not ask hard questions. Uh, and I think there's this there's this ecosystem that we we I'm on the periphery of. You're directly in. That is very much a colleague to colleague relationship. But if you're letting somebody into your your university, I you have to ask them hard questions. You have to put them in the hot seat. Uh, you have to make them a little uncomfortable. That's our job as as people on the periphery. To enter, right? We have to defend our dissertation, uh, and we have to we have to do it in ways that that you accept, not that we convince you otherwise of. And so, I just want to start there and say, like, it begins at a trust creation process, and everything. Everybody says candor and transparency and all these buzzwords, but like, you know, when someone's being honest with you, and if you look them in the eyes, and you can you can tell if they're taking you through a financial model or a contract with sincerity. And I, I think there should be a little bit more of a trust your gut. Thing to put a to put a point on it um, as people come in. So I, Eddie, I, it makes sense, right? Why why would you not be skeptical? You've seen some bad actors come in. You've seen current contracts that I think are under some scrutiny. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we should celebrate the fact that people are are not just diving into bad deals. But I obviously will will say I think that 
there's a great space for public-private partnerships. And if, if done right, done with true partnership um, and with good actors, great things can happen. And you know, I would just add one more point. I would, I would look deep into the, the backgrounds and the interests and the belief in, in higher ed at a, at a public com- or a private company might have. Make sure that they're actually invested. This isn't just for a payday. This isn't just for a paycheck, um, that they sincerely believe that they can better institutions, better student outcomes, and take your time doing it. There, there's no rush. And that's, I think, what's going to happen right now, and it's kind of what I was alluding to, is I think everybody's kind of rushing to online. They might explore partnerships for the first time, and they might make the same mistakes that were made 10 years ago. How did I do? Because I didn't know you were going to ask that. Yeah, no, I, 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 this is good. And this is one of the conversations uh, to have. I mean, so, so folks listening know, I mean, we've known you, Lee, for a while now. I, I got to know John Katzman kind of longer time uh, before that. You know, one of the things that I think we need to be doing more is getting together and having the, these honest, critical, non-defensive conversations and, you know, and to, to kind of bring it back. The, the coin of the realm in academia is hypothesis-based research, evidence-based mm. research that, yep. that's independent. That's really lacking now in this space. You know, Eddie and I have been trying to figure out how to actually do that in a very difficult circumstance. But the, the data is, is hard to get at. Uh, you have to look at places working with partners and working, not working with partners. This seems to be kind of a, a research uh, gap. And, and clearly we haven't figured out how to, how to fill that. So you know, I, one of the things that, that I'm hoping after COVID where we've all had this experience working more online and from, from what I can tell, Lee, your phone is ringing off the hook and, and other providers as well. We need to ground this in, in some good in, independent research. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the kind of the, the open conversations on Twitter uh, between folks when you, when you bring that up. And I, so just so you know, I think I've voiced it publicly. I agree with you. So long as it doesn't slow progress or evolution or innovation, I'm all for it. And I, so far I haven't seen research do that in this space, probably because there's been very little, but that's another conversation. I guess the knock is the right questions yet. I mean, part of the dynamic that Josh just laid out in terms of what's important in higher education is not just, you know, that you you come up with a hypothesis, it's that you actually ask a really important, interesting question. And often coming up with that question is much harder than actually answering the question. And I think we're still trying to figure out what the right questions are um, around online. And I think we're going to see that in the in our kind of response to the past year. Uh, we we started sort of alluded, or I think Lee, you might have alluded to this or Josh earlier in the conversation, the idea that, you know, a lot of people are going to look at the past year and think this is remote learning and this is therefore online learning done badly and why online can be bad, but we want to change the conversation to, well, this is, that was remote learning and not online learning. I'm not actually so sure that that's true. So yeah, I think you have to kind of play that out. I think that's the that's the version of a response that those of us who have some investment in online want to make. We want to say, look, what we did for the last year was not online learning. If you had had instructional designers, if you had all of this attention, it would have been much, much better. This would have been a very different kind of experience for our students. I'd, I'd be willing to bet that that's just not the case, like across the board. I, I, <laughs> I would wager that really the issue for the last year was not whether or not most faculty did a bad job in the remote space or they could have done better if they had these institutional resources. Some of that's probably true. A lot of that's maybe even very true. But a lot of my 
sense of what happened in the last year is you had students who had who were isolated, you had faculty members who were isolated from everything, from each other, from their peers, from their institution, from their context, all of the things that help create that sense of learning. That isolation was then also on top of lack of access for many to the tools that they needed to do their work in a particular kind of way. So good technology access and so on. Right. So and then you had students for whom, and faculty, for whom this was everything, right? So the isolation, the lack of tools, and then there's a complete sort of uh, myopia that comes into, (laughs) there's a complete myopia that comes into just focusing on uh, teaching and learning in this space uh, because you don't have anything else. You don't have these other courses. So how do you play that out? Well, I can easily imagine that faculty members if you had one or two courses that were taught the same way in a context where students are taking some things residentially and some things online, the courses could have been done exactly as they were done. We had, the students probably would be much more engaged. It's just everything was weighed so heavily in this process that was well beyond the, the ability of an institution, any one institution or all of them to really respond to. We were just in a, we're in a different place, very different place than if, if students had done online learning in a particular kind of context. That was more dynamic, uh, related to resources that they had, and so on and so forth. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, yeah. So Eddie, I, I don't, I don't think I can let you get away with this. <laughs> so, so, so my perspective is mostly as a parent here. One kid in grad school, one kid who's a junior at a university. So I've watched them as a parent, and I've watched these kids go through Zoom U, like they're just constantly on Zoom. The the schools for a lot of classes have just transferred the face to face classes onto Zoom. As online learning people, we know that's the, the worst way to teach. And, and that if you if we had had, if, if all these schools have had more instructional designers, if they had designed their classes to work both online and residential, it, it would have looked, worked differently. So Eddie, how, how can you, how can you uh, defend? I don't, I don't think it would have mattered. For one, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the premise that Zoom U was the only way that people worked. We had, we had faculty who were doing complex dynamics between asynchronous and synchronous. We had faculty members who were actually doing a a really good job thinking through what it meant to teach in this context. We trained them, we got them supported in a particular kind of way to think more creatively, more flexibly with their students. But the students were still feeling the weight of the world. The faculty were still feeling the weight of the world. Your, Your kids, you know, going through school, this is what they have. That's it. Right. This was their this was their experience. So everything was contained and constrained. You can't you just can't compare it to what could possibly have happened when the world was opened up. If we were to do the same kind of teaching and learning experience with our faculty members, I think you just would have seen a very different reaction from from the students. So it's just that we're, we're we had a lot of variables, I guess, is the point from last year, a ton of different variables, and we're isolating one and saying this was the problem. And I, my guess is that there were probably five or six of those variables in combination that were the problem. It could very well be that that one is, is significant, but I don't think it was the most significant um, part of the challenge that we were facing. I looked at, I mean, I look at uh, all of the responses from our students. We survey our students regularly at Georgetown. And you know, there were, there were definitely a lot of challenges that our students were re- reflecting, but by and large, they were challenges of, you know, I, how do you expect me to study right now? How do you expect me to do my, my coursework right, right now? My faculty members are trying, but how do you expect me to do this? And yes, Zoom U is exhausting. Being in this space is exhausting because it's all you've got. 
right? You're just sitting in this chair eight hours a day. But that doesn't mean that doing a Zoom classroom is the problem. It means that only having a Zoom classroom is potentially the problem, right? And so how do you think about then separating those two things? But we're not going to get there unless we ask those questions, right? If we just go in and say, Zoom U is the problem, or this is the problem, uh, and it's, it's online learning without instructional designers, that's the problem, then we're missing the potential to look at all of the other variables that created the challenge of the past year. Okay, so we can agree that we have to do this research. Yeah, but it's ultimately the point, right? This is the this is the point of, of learning innovation, at least as we define it. It is this larger context. It's not one thing. If what we're arguing is that the problem is the classroom experience for students in the Zoom space, then what we're doing is exactly what we're saying we shouldn't be doing in other contexts, which is isolating that one relationship and not looking at the larger relationships. You know, I. I don't know if this is going to get me booed off stage or not, but, and I don't have data on this. So I'm just going to open up as a philosophical conversation and, and, and identify it as that. I think that companies were more ready for remote work than schools in aggregate were ready for remote learning. Do you think I'm right? And, or do you think that's true? I guess, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't care, but is that true? And is that, is that something we should focus on and getting everybody up to speed for the next time this happens, or like, like the knock is that higher ed's behind. But is that true? So, so I, Lee, I, I think it's a really interesting hypothesis. I think it's, it's um, very provocative. I, I, I like it. You have to think, though, that the people who work at, at companies, particularly professional companies where people were able to go remotely, these aren't like 20 something year olds, right? These are people who are older, who have a lot of resources and a lot of privilege. And of course, when you have those resources and privilege and you're older, you're going to be able to navigate the, the yeah. worst parts of remote yeah. work. Remember, higher education, we serve everyone. And, you know, we're, we're, we're working with young people and people who have, have multiple potential, multiple disadvantages who've had to keep things going here. You know, one thing that Eddie and I write about quite a bit and think about is how, how COVID has really both revealed and exacerbated the inequalities in higher education. And I mean, for us, it, it's, it's no longer acceptable to have such a, a wide gap in terms of access and quality based on, on someone's income, particularly as, as you know, the states and government is, is disinvesting. So you know, coming out of this time, we really think that our focus has to be on, on issues of quality for everyone, universal design for everyone, accessibility. We, we talk about, can we use what we do to bend the cost curve? in higher education. These are these are the, the issues, not just having a higher education that works for the kind of um, highly educated, most privileged people who like, you know, kind of people who work at, at Noodle or other professional companies. The other part of the answer to this is, you know, higher ed's been pretty resilient during this past year, which means we must have done something well enough to be able yeah. to get through yeah. this period of time, right? And to, um, to continue mission, again, not perfect. It, it's not been, I think, for, for many of the experience that they expected, but I, who, who can say that about anything over the past year, right? I mean, nothing about the past year has been what anyone expects or, or wanted. At the same time, higher ed did, um, by and large, a pretty good job trying to figure out how do we continue to provide services? And you know, they looked at the things that were most important, which is, you know, what Josh and I have been trying to argue. And the, the most important thing there is teaching and learning and kind of spent their time trying to invest in that space. Some did better. Some had resources to do better. Some didn't and just had to, you know, hope and pray that these things would work out. But by and large, the, the expectations that, you know, half of the institutions would, would fold or the sort of sense of everyone's going to move to a community college now and, and no one's going to 
go to these residential institutions, it didn't seem to play out right in that kind of way. In fact, maybe the opposite uh, in, in many respects. And so I don't know I, that I would agree with the premise. I think Cairo did a pretty good job as an as a kind of industry to the space. Yeah, I was just I was just trying to be as provocative as Josh was to me. You know, <laughs> uh, no, I I think I drew a false dichotomy. But it, if you if it gets us talking about it, and I you know that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. So we don't have a lot of time, and I, I've I want to get into something though that I've always wondered the relationship of recruiting and marketing online, and what you all see in in your individual units. This is probably a, a whole hour long conversation we could have, but I'm just looking for like a response and some some context around it. Like as you know, a lot of the online programs that we build and that we that other schools build, they put a lot into the marketing part of it, which is so distinct and discreet from digital learning in a lot of ways, right? You have to represent the digital learning well, and then the digital learning has to keep students in and engaged throughout the arc of the program, attrition rates low, yada, yada. But how do you, how do you see that relationship when you think about um, online learning? It's two worlds to me, uh, but they overlap. How, do, how are those worlds to you? Maybe I'll, I'll start. Uh, I think the uh... It, Josh suggested I was online learning skeptical, um, or, or not online learning, but partnership skeptical. Partnership skeptical, OPM skeptical. The one thing I'm not skeptical about is, uh, you know, that marketing and recruiting piece of that partnership. I'm actually not skeptical generally about partnerships between private and nonprofit in in the higher ed space. I and mean, we have lots of them, infrastructure, our fiber network, energy, we just signed a big contract with. There are things that we do that are that are significant. What I'm generally skeptical of is turning over core competencies um, of an institution to someone else. So the teaching and learning core competencies, the learning, yeah. and I think, you know, the learning design and the context uh, competencies are really important here. But I don't think most institutions need to be investing in marketing and recruitment in the same way. And they just don't have the, the capacity to do so generally to do it well. And so there, I think there's actually good, generally really good partnership possibilities um, with OPMs. I'll just jump in here. Something that John Katzman said to me, or maybe said to other people is, yes, like, why don't schools have one person whose job it is to bring down the costs of education for students, whose their whole job is to lower the costs? I think it's a really interesting uh, question, you know, when, when um, online programs, when you're spending 20% of the revenues on marketing, it's going to drive up costs. So we have these forces going, kind of working against each other, uh, scale versus online competition. I, I, I like John's framing. And, you know, it's, again, you know, Lee, I like hanging out with you guys because you ask some provocative questions, you and John. And, um, you know, that's, we need this more. That's what we respond to well in higher education. We like uh, to be provoked. We like to be argued with. We like to have our uh, assumptions questioned. All right. I'm not going to call that a non-answer, but I said it. All right, guys, this has been awesome. I, I, I would love to have you back. All right. This show is typically about the people. And we, I know we got into a little bit of your backstories, but I think what I'm realizing as we talk, it'd be fun to have this as, you know, every few months, uh, basically every time you guys write a book, we'll have you back on uh, and update those books. If you're up for that, I'd, you know, maybe we look at some time in the summer uh, or early fall and, and, and do it again. So I, I, Seriously, thank you for being here. You're you're both wildly intelligent, wildly successful in your in your own respects, and that's it's pretty cool to have you here. Thanks, Lee. Great to chat with you. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle, the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.